Hello? Anybody home? Today, I want you to open your mind. I've almost come to the conclusion that the story is so damning that the mass of people can't deal with it. We are in process of developing a whole series of techniques to get people actually to love their servitude. We face a hostile ideology, global in scope, atheistic in character, ruthless in purpose and insidious in method. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence. To change the minds and the attitudes and the beliefs of the people of the world, especially the United States, to bring about one world socialist totalitarian government. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. It has patterned itself after every dictator who has ever planted the ripping imprint of a boot on the pages of history since the beginning of time. Brutes have risen to power, but they lie. Dictators free themselves, but they enslave the people. If you can get people to consent to the state of affairs in which they are living, then you have a much more easily controllable society than you would if you were relying only on clubs and firing squads and concentration camps. Tools of conquest do not necessarily come with bombs and explosions and fallout. There are weapons that are simply thoughts, attitudes, prejudices, to be found only in the minds of men. As you connect the dots between different people, organizations, places, religions, history, suddenly the picture starts to form. If you don't connect the dots. It's just a mass of what's all this about. The kingdom of God is within man, not one man, nor a group of men, but in all men, in you, you the people have the power to make this life free and beautiful, to make this life a wonderful adventure. Someone born in the United States is not more special than someone born in Mexico. Someone who is white is not more special than someone who is black. They're just vehicles for the consciousness to experience. War is peace. Freedom is slavery. They do not want your children to be educated. They do not want you to think too much. It was learned that the aliens had been and were then manipulating masses of people through secret societies, witchcraft, magic, the occult, and religion. They reach into our children. Music, television, books. Prey on children's innocence. How can I disprove lies that are stamped with an official seal? So if you have the opportunity to stand next to one of these machines, it feels like an altar to an alien god. Genetic power is the most awesome force the planet's ever seen, but you wield it like a kid that's found his dad's gun. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc is now in the possession of the Army. Too many others know what's happening out there, and no one, no government agency has jurisdiction over the truth. Any state, any entity, any ideology that fails to recognize the worth, the dignity, the rights of man, that state is obsolete. A case to be filed under M for Mankind in the Twilight Zone. About time some of you got acquainted with the real hard truth. It's the heart that says, I will not acquiesce. Broadcasting from the Sonoran Desert, I'm your host, Ryan Gable, and you are tuned into the Secret Teachings Radio, airing five nights a week, Monday through Friday, on Ground Zero.radio, right after Ground Zero with Clyde Lewis. Thank you for coming over to the Secret Teachings from GZ. Thank you for listening in the Secret Teachings archive at thesecretteachings.info. 
those of you who are subscribers. If you're not a subscriber, you don't have access to the montages, the ad-free show, digital copies of my books that you'll get with your subscription, and a private RSS feed, of course you can still listen as you might be on one of the free radio or podcast players. And if you are listening there and you don't have the means to financially support us, please leave us a review to let us know what you think of the show. It is October 6th, 2022. If you'd like to reach out and contact us, rdgable at yahoo.com is the email. You can also find us on Twitter, TST underscore underscore radio and facebook.com forward slash the secret teachings. Of course, my new book, Liberty Shrugged, and that book is available on the website. When you buy that book, we get the direct support and that also keeps us on air as well. Please do not buy it from Amazon. If you see it posted, buy it from our website. That's the only reliable and safe and cheaper way to purchase the book. Tonight on the broadcast, longtime friend of mine, good friend of mine, inside and outside the radio world, Brad Olson, the author of the Esoteric book series. I'm not sure how many times Brad has been on the show, but I think at least uh, double digits by this point. Uh, We've been talking and been friends for probably seven years now. It's been seven, eight years. Um, I was thinking of some of my other friends in radio, like uh, Karen Dolman. Uh, You might know her from the Ouija board. And uh, I think I've been friends with her for like eight or nine years. I I can't believe how long I've, I've done this show for. But Brad is with us tonight in the second segment and throughout the entirety of the second hour. He is joining us to speak about his new book, about upcoming events, and of course, about some of his most recent research, including maps from the ancient world. Most of you know the Perry Rees map. There's also a lot of other interesting maps, the Haji Ahmed map, the Orentius Phineas map, and so many others. A really great book. You can pick this up at a used bookstore, an esoteric or occult bookstore. I'll give a big shout out to Nexus, the bookstore here in Tucson, Arizona. I've become friends with those guys and I went in there the other day to drop off one of my books because they're selling my books there now. And uh, I knew that I was going to be speaking with Brad tonight and I asked them, I know you have a cartography section. I'm looking for the uh, Adventures Unlimited Press, which is the David Childress company. I'm looking for their version of the Charles Hapgood maps of the ancient sea kings and owner of the store took me over and he gave it to me and uh, great guys, great store. If you're in the area, you should check them out. Nexus occult books, gifts and oddities. Uh, And uh, so he had a copy of this and kind of traded a book for it. And I was looking through it before the show tonight, knowing that we were going to talk about maps and uh, there's more than one map that shows Antarctica on. uh, Well, these are, kind of ancient maps. These aren't recent maps, as most of you know. So somebody at some point in human history had to have had an aerial view of the Earth to be able to, to, to depict Antarctica. Also, by the way, without ice, which is really incredible. And as a lot of the ice melts in some regions and other places, it's actually increasing. Of course, their summer is our winter. And uh, we're starting to see that some of the islands, and I'm not, I'm not an expert on this, Brad is, but 
some of these islands down here uh, in the in the Arctic, in the Antarctic area, they are mimicking uh, what we find on these maps. So uh, these maps are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old. And reportedly, Perry Reese map dates back to the source maps from the Library of Alexandria, which, of course, was officially burned to the ground. There were a bunch of other library or library-like uh, facilities. It's likely the Vatican has control of, of those source maps and materials. And, but that's, that's just the paper trail. Uh, when we look back into human history, we find physical evidence of artifacts and structures that defy the imagination. And looking back into those ancient days, uh, into times that are hundreds, times that are thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years old, even millions perhaps, there are a lot of questions, not just about how humans built these things, but what led to the knowledge. Was it a series of... um, lengthy and complex historical events and advancements in civilization that naturally occurred? Was there intervention by, well, we would call them aliens? Or is the idea of being assisted by aliens or the gods, uh, is that just simply a result of, like when you pray and you ask for um, assistance or you ask for strength or... You ask for uh, the, the, the mental capacity to deal with something. You say that God helped you. And we look back on history and our ancestors said they were assisted by the gods or they learned from the gods. We also learn from the gods. We learn from our ancestors. We learn from uh, giants of the past, men of science and philosophy and literature, etc. So that's the first thing that we have to consider. The other thing we have to consider is when we think of Genesis, like, God created the heaven and the earth, and you know the rest of the thing. Uh, I think, it's my opinion, my view, uh, that like when I was in school, let me use this as an example. When I was in school, I went to a Christian school, and we learned about how God created the heavens and the earth, and uh, there was little to no talk that I can recall about any uh, evolutionary uh, principle. Then I transferred in 8th, ninth grade to a public school. I moved from Florida to West Virginia. I grew up in West Virginia for a few years as well. It's kind of a a home to me. And I went to a school that was obviously not Christian, uh, University High School in Morgantown, West Virginia. And this school um, was very, very public, let's say. Uh, A lot of drugs, a lot of pregnancies, a lot of violence. Not as bad as uh, the Morgantown High School down the road, but in this school, we learned more about evolution because that was kind of a standard thing because it wasn't a Christian school. And I remember thinking, why can't, and by no means was I in any way, shape, or form the intellectual individual I am today. Uh, I was not very intelligent in school because my facilities for that type of thought were not, they weren't coddled. They weren't um, protected and cultivated. They were kind of stomped out naturally by the the, the educational process, quote unquote. So I still thought then, and and this has developed as an adult into kind of like um, a philosophical thing that I'll think about when I'm sitting outside at night looking at the stars or just in a general conversation, something interesting to bring up. Why can't evolution and creation 
be the same thing, is it not possible, or at least intellectually reasonable, to allow for the coexistence of these seemingly contradictory and seemingly contrary notions, such as evolution and creation? Creation obviously implies that there's a creator and that there's divinity and an eternal existence, and evolution implies everything is a result of mere happenstance without really addressing the means by which such a random occurrence spawned. And of course, you have to have randomness and order. Order comes out of chaos, and chaos can come out of order. And when you look at the institutions of creationism and evolutionism, if you will, you find religion, you find science, and these are two institutions in a variety of forms that really are one and the same. If you're a Christian, a Muslim, a Buddhist, if you're a scientist, if you will, if you're not religious, you're not really a scientist, but you're an atheist, perhaps. I mean, everybody is observing the natural world. We're trying to understand the natural world. We're trying to label it, catalog it, and interact with it. There really isn't much of a difference between someone who prays to God to obtain understanding and the scientist who examines the natural world who observes the natural world to obtain understanding. You're just asking a higher authority, if you will, to help you understand whatever it is that you're dealing with, whatever it is that you're, that you're going through. You might need assistance for. So we can do that with the mind or we can do that with technology, physical technology. Now, perhaps the middle ground between the two is what we would call, in my line of work, the esoteric story of creation. Depending on what historical thought you subscribe to, historical school of thought, I should say, the idea is that man evolved not necessarily from a monkey, and it was, man wasn't created uh, just as a man by God, but man evolved through a creative process by way of the fundamental elements. This is the idea that there are seven worlds those worlds are the mineral and the elemental. Those are the base worlds or elemental mineral, plant, animal, human, demigod, and God. These are worlds, times, spheres of consciousness. And of course, since there are seven of them, seven divine rays of light, seven days of the week, seven days of creation. And when we play around with the idea that God is the universe... And everything in the universe is an expression of God's consciousness, and we are droplets in that giant ocean. We basically have, in the idea that God and his brain, if you will, is the universe, the macrocosm of the microcosm that is our brain, our perception, our consciousness, perceiving and creating through thought the world that we live in and perceive to live in. That's the microcosm of the mind of God, which is the macrocosm. And, and these are not anthropomorphic terms like God and universe. You could say it's alive, but we're not talking about a physical deity. We're talking about a life force, an energy, an essence. And when we talk about that, it's silly to me that scientists suggest, oh, just the Big Bang, or there was a white hole and then a, a black hole and a white hole was at the other end of the black hole and everything just blew up and came into existence and everything was structured order after the chaos. Well, that implies some level of design, some level of a triggering event 
Otherwise, everything is totally random. Nothing makes sense, but too much makes sense for nothing to make sense. Does that make sense? We exist within and without ourselves. I mean, we're constantly being recycled, constantly being created, constantly breaking down, constantly being recreated. And this is the nature of the mind. It's the nature of the breath of life, the breathing in and out, day and night, the cyclical and the repetitive, the up and down, the in and out, the breath. The planet breathes, we breathe, the sun breathes. Everything goes through cycles. And the lack of complete understanding as per our origins does not imply incompetence or stupidity. Instead, I think it implies uh, opportunity. It implies growth. It implies uh, the opposite of stagnation. It's the ability to explore. If we already understood everything, we wouldn't be exploring. We wouldn't be learning anything, anything new. Stagnation occurs when we prevent ourselves from considering other possibilities, other scenarios. And that's why I think in, in the most standard rudimentary sense, creation needs to accept evolution and evolution needs to accept creation. And I think everybody needs to get together and consider the possibility of a third scenario in which, depending on what we're talking about being created or evolving, humans might be the product of Artificial genetic manipulation. Put those three ideas together. Even if you just put, by mixing and matching them, two of those ideas together, things randomly formed. Humans could have been the, 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 the product of genetic manipulation by the gods or by aliens if you want to entertain those thoughts. Regardless of how you break it down, when you combine these ideas together, I think it starts to make a lot more sense. I, I think the world makes a lot more sense. I think we start to fill in the holes that are created by the separation of the sciences and the, and the religious institutions and ideologies, and it makes a lot more sense. Because when we talk about an ancient time on Earth, uh, rather than an ancient beyond time in the universe... We have more than background radiation that stands out to us. We have incredible megalithic and monolithic structures. We have architectural designs and patterns and engineering that just completely defy the imagination, completely defy computers, like contemporary systems that are unable to replicate what our ancestors did thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of years ago. We have advanced artifacts, and by advanced, I mean advanced for today. Part of that's because we think our ancestors were stupid. Our ancestors were basically peasants, if you will. They didn't have anything. They were just dirty and uh, gross and didn't understand how the world worked, and they were just dumb and illiterate, and that's not really the case. But, you know, some artifacts are very advanced, and those advanced artifacts, the Antikytherian device, Clerkstorp spheres, you name it, indicate that there was a level of knowledge in those days that exceeds what, that, well, in some ways exceeds what we've, we've done today, at least the average person, what the average person understands. We also have preserved information. We not only have the physical hard evidence of, uh, I don't know, you could name anything. You could name Machu Picchu, you could name Nan Madal, the Ixian Pyramid in China, Newgrange, Pumapunku, you can name uh, any of these uh, un unbelievable uh, uh, structures, Gigantesia, uh, uh, the, the different uh, artifacts, a lot of these different things. Um, I know our guest this evening, Brad Olson, was talking about a relatively recent find, Yonaguni, 
Uh, there's all kinds of incredible things all over the world. That's the physical evidence. And then the Piri Rees map and these other maps that go back to Alexandria and before, that's, that's kind of like the paper trail. And it all shows us that there are mathematical, uh, there are cartography, if you will, there are scientific, there are engineering, etc. feats that are more advanced than what we understand today. And, and a lot of that could just be because we don't have a perspective on the ancient world that would assume uh, or would allow for, I should say, our ancestors to have access to any of this stuff. It's, it's impossible. We're just discovering it today. How did they know? It's impossible. It must be a, a, a just a, a fantastical thing to, to just believe because you want to live in a, in, a, in, a, in a fantasy world, a science fiction novel. But that's not the case. Uh, I mean, obviously... Part of the reason we don't understand uh, these types of finds is because the common person, and I'm included uh, when it comes to architecture and mathematics and certain sciences, the average person, the common person, I myself included, doesn't really have uh, even a rudimentary introductory level of information on these things. Now, for myself, I do have quite a bit of a background in history, and uh, I know that the average person outside myself doesn't. Uh, I don't know much about ac- uh, architecture or archaeology or mathematics. So I can't speak from those points of view. I can speak from the historical point of view. And I know that the average person doesn't know about these things. So I can't imagine what I don't know about mathematics and architecture and science. And although I tend, I try, I hope you do as well, I try to rein in speculation Often what happens is when we don't know about the basics of what we, we can say to understand today, it leaves us vulnerable to experts, if you will, and flights of fantasy. So the quick assumption is it's not evolution, it's not God, it must be aliens. Uh, and the thing is we're trying to label the source. We're trying to label the, the intelligence or the technology. But we all agree on one thing, whether you believe in aliens or God or both, whether you believe in uh, evolution or whether you believe in something totally different, genetic manipulation of, of humans that came about from evolution. Maybe God created us and aliens manipulated us. I mean, there's, there's just so many possibilities and so many ideas, so many thoughts, entertainment, so many things to speculate on. We all agree that there's something. We all see the paper trail. We see the, the physical trail of evidence that there was an advanced civilization But we tend to ignore the reason, I think, for the debate, which is the abundance of evidence of something absolutely fantastical in our past. I mean, thousands of years ago, UFOs, unidentified flying objects, were labeled as shields or labeled as chariots. These were the technological capabilities of the times. Some called them ships. Others identified them, the more scientific-minded, identified them as comets, natural things, uh, if you will. I say natural, but I guess aliens could be natural, right? But as time moved on, we started to see these objects differently. In the 20th and 21st century, we saw those alien spaceships because of movies and literature and TV shows and technological developments. Thousands of years ago, chariots were controlled by the gods. Now today, the gods have become potential cosmic brothers as we design uh, technologies that could potentially take us uh, to other worlds. And as we continue to develop that technology, those cosmic brothers may themselves turn into cosmic rivals or cosmic servants as our technology perhaps exceeds theirs. What we don't know is how it all came about, but what we do know 
is that the remnants of such incredible skill and know-how, the physical and the paper trail, when we examine that evidence, we often neglect to recognize the ingenuity and the ability of the human. While scientists dismiss God as imperfect and his creation as imperfect, suggesting they can replace the organic world with the synthetic one, scientists also tend to dismiss the idea of any other life form and Religious-minded individuals tend to dismiss the idea that humans, uh, some religious-minded individuals, humans have the abilities that could make them almost godlike, because that's, that's dangerous, right? And I think we're all neglecting to recognize that just through standard, if you will, human development, humans can do really incredible things, even without computers, even without the technologies that we have today. Is it not possible that all these amazing artifacts and structures and the things that give us this idea that there had to have been some divine intelligence involved, we're really just looking at ourselves. We're looking at our own intelligence. And perhaps the reason we don't have conscious or at least fully conscious awareness of that is maybe there were cataclysmic events. Maybe something uh, genetically engineered us. Maybe something prevented us from accessing that information. I mean, look at what happens when a hurricane hits Florida. Look at the destruction and the devastation. And if nobody cleaned it up, within a period of years, uh, it, it would start to look like, I mean, some ruins of houses and things destroyed. It would just look like nobody lived there. And, and that's stuff that, you know, breaks apart and, and, and decays. And when you look at these uh, unbelievable stone structures, uh, rock structures, etc., they, they stand the test of time, like the great pyramids and pyramids all over the world, of course, and these uh, newer pyramids, relatively recently discovered pyramids in Mexico, the 13 heavens, uh, the longest night, and the, the wind, or the house of the wind, um, these pyramids in Mexico, uh, the Valley of the Virgin. We're finding new stuff like this all the time. And it's rewriting history every day. We don't hear about it. We don't think about it, unless you tune into a late-night radio show like this. But it is, to say the least, fascinating and it's something that when we think about it in context with human intellect, I think outside of aliens, humans are much more responsible for a lot of this stuff. But again, that's part of that debate. What we don't need to debate is that this stuff exists. We have the paper trail and the maps and the documents. We have the structures. And we also have Brad Olson with us tonight to talk about these things and give us a little bit of an idea, a little bit of a look into these ancient map makers and uh, the original races, perhaps, if we can call them that, that inhabiting, uh, inhabited this planet and uh, built the world that we see uh, in Remnant. I'm Ryan Gable. This is The Secret Teaching. Brad Olson coming up right after this on The Secret Teachings. Don't go anywhere. Stay with us. There's a lot more after this. You're listening to The Secret Teachings. For more information on the show or to contact Ryan, visit thesecretteachings.info or email ryan at rdgable at yahoo.com. Hey, this is John Peasy at johnpeasy.com, and I'm here with Ryan Gable from The Secret Teachings. So it's taken months, but my new book, Liberty Shrugged, is finally available. Nearly 700 pages with archived images. It will leave you fascinated and wanting more. 
See, hatred for America and the Constitution is based on misconceptions of history and the rule of law. Charges of racism, sexism, and bigotry don't hold up to history and context. They stem from nullifiers who wanted to replace the Constitution and maintain hierarchy, as with the Confederate Constitution, which aimed to preserve the institution of slavery. But racism was not the foundation of that institution. It was a final justification to defend an institution which had existed forever and for which Western civilization and colonialism was actually taking steps to end. Africans and Arabs organized slave trading far exceeding anything in the Atlantic, and some continue to this day. Also, a woman's role in household duties was as systemic as a man's role in the legislature or on the battlefield. Indian tribes, when they weren't at war with one another, were choosing sides with the Europeans. See, we can't address history from the air-conditioned seats of a progressive university and pass judgments on men, women, and events that we know nothing about. My book, Liberty Shrugged, attempts to dispel countless historical, cultural, and social myths in order to find an objective understanding of history, the present, and the future. It's Liberty Shrugged at www.thesecretteachings.info. I hope you'll get a copy today for yourself, for your friends, for your family. I think you'll really enjoy it. If anyone can hear this broadcast, I'm still on Earth. This is the frequency of Ground Zero Radio. Ground Zero with Clyde Lewis, and The Secret Teachings with myself, Brian Gable. You could listen to this. And again, you know, people say David has no evidence, David has no evidence. I hate this channel. Or you could listen to The Secret Teachings with myself, Ryan Gable, five nights a week on Ground Zero Radio. Join us to explore the outer limits of history, symbolism, parapolitics, and more. We'll explore a little bit of everything, but don't take my word for it. I'm kind of like you. I'm the last of a dying breed, a generalist. That's The Secret Teachings, five nights a week on Ground Zero Radio. This is Kev Baker of The Kev Baker Show, and you're listening to The Secret Teachings with Ryan Gable. Thanks, Ryan. This is David Knight with thedavidknightshow.com, and you're listening to The Secret Teachings. Broadcasting from somewhere between the normal and abnormal. A collection of question marks. No reason, no explanation. Just a prolonged nightmare in which fear, loneliness, and the unexplainable walk hand in hand through the shadows. It's The Secret Teachings on Ground Zero Radio. My guest this evening, Brad Olson of the Esoteric Book Series. I'm Ryan Gable, your host, and this is The Secret Teachings Radio. In the first segment tonight, I was playing around with the idea of creationism and evolution. I always thought that creationism and evolution, or evolutionism, could be one and the same. I used to think this as a kid, thought this as an adult, I've thought this throughout my professional career. Why can't they be related to one another? Why can't they share a a common space? And I think creationists, they should probably open the door, open their mind to the concept of evolution. And I think evolutionists should open their mind to the concept of creation. But I think a lot of the problem with these ideas is that we have very rigid and narrow definitions of what creation is. Creationism means that there's a creator, there's a divine uh, deity, there's an entity, something building the world, uh, the grand architect, if you will. 
And in evolution, it sort of gets rid of the idea of any kind of order, any kind of divinity, and it, and it sets up a, a, a system of thought in which uh, things are happenstance. Uh, uh, they're just random. They just occur, and there's no real uh, origin to them. And I think both ideas have merit, and I think both ideas can be, mir- uh, can be married together, and I think they kind of mirror each other in a lot of ways, just like religion and science in general, uh, we, they're really just observations of the natural world. And we are attempting to understand, label, and catalog, and, and interact with nature. That's why we pray. That's why we observe things. That's why we experiment. These are just different ways to approach an understanding of the natural, organic world, and, of course, of the universe. And if we play around with the idea that the universe is the mind of God... That is a macrocosm, the extension of which is us and our consciousness, and then the microcosm within that is our consciousness, our perception, and what we determine to be our reality on our planet and our lives, the small little corner of the vastness of space. And I think over over hundreds of years, because these ideas have been around for hundreds of years, that that there are things, entities, demons, monsters, uh, whatever they might be called, uh, aliens, etc., that are coming from somewhere else. We have these ideas, and we assign them to religion. In the case of demonology, uh, uh, demonology, or we have um, ideas like uh, the jinn. We have ideas like uh, the daemon, which is more philosophical, which is the the inner uh, part of you. It's something that's kind of like the shadow self. And then you have uh, other ideas, like in science, the demon would more so maybe be an extraterrestrial. But again, it's it's all really coming from the same place. And uh, when we talk about trying to figure out the origin of, of, of man, the origin of our species, and we have the idea of creation, we have the idea of evolution, some people kind of dismiss both ideas in a way, but then they also kind of recreate and re, uh, they realign these ideas. So it's not God, it's not a random occurrence, perhaps it's extraterrestrials, and I think that there are other ways that we can address the subject as well. I think that sometimes we look too much for background radiation. We look too much for God or the gods. We look too much for extraterrestrials or ultraterrestrials or interdimensionals. And sometimes all the evidence that we have on this planet of some higher intelligence is evidence of some higher intelligence, regardless of what you call it. I think personally, this is my opinion, that a lot of what we see on this planet megalithic, monolithic structures, incredible out-of-place artifacts, etc., might be a result of an advanced human civilization that may or may not have had contact, perhaps not, with another form of higher intelligence that wasn't human. Um, These are ideas that are really fascinating, and it's fun to speculate about them. But I think the one thing that isn't speculation is that we have the evidence around us. Call it God, call it aliens, call it ancient civilization, call it whatever you want to call it. But we have the evidence all around us in amazing, amazing mathematical, architectural, and engineering feats that defy computers today, defy the imagination today, and artifacts, and even in ideas. And the proof and the evidence of that is all around us, and somebody who knows a lot about all of those things is my good friend. He's been on the show so many times before. Brad Olson of the Esoteric Book Series. Brad has a new talk. He's talking about um, the builder race and uh, ancient maps 
And I wanted to invite Brad on the show tonight to talk about these kinds of things and to just have a general conversation. Plus, we're learning new stuff uh, in contemporary times, new stuff just the last week. Pyramids in Mexico called the, these are really incredible, House of the 13 Heavens and then two smaller pyramidal structures, the House of Wind and the House of the Longest Night. Just something kind of random I pulled up on the internet, but once again, something that it almost seems like weekly or monthly, Brad, we have discoveries that are changing and redefining human history. How are you doing? Welcome to the show. Uh, What do you make of all this? Hey, Ryan, always great to be back on The Secret Teachings, and I'm doing just great. And I totally agree with you. We are coming up with new discoveries in archaeology, often very, very old archaeological findings around the world, sometimes even underwater on, it seems like, a weekly basis. The latest is this Google Earth find of what I think looks like uh, an Egyptian temple face in the Grand Canyon. It looks like Abu Simbel, that uh, very famous temple down near the uh, Aswan Dam that had to be disassembled and brought up to the High Mesa when they filled in the dam. But this was just found uh, last weekend, just last weekend, by some guy scouring on Google Earth. And other findings such as Yonaguni, which is off the uh, archipelago of islands uh, of Japan, closer to Taiwan. It's an island called Yonaguni. Huge, massive underwater structure just found in the last decade by scuba divers that National Geographic finally had to admit could not have been caused by natural formation. So you're getting these admissions, finally, that there was some kind of high civilization that once existed on this earth, long before the history books told us the uh, Egyptians and the cradle of civilization were the beginning of civilization. Uh, It's much, much older than that. How old are we talking about when you say much, much older? Do we even have an idea? Are we talking thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years? Well, for example, the Yonaguni structure under the water, you can scuba dive down there. It's about uh, 300 feet at its deepest point, and that would also correspond to the last ice age. So Yonaguni must have been created at least 12,000 years ago before the younger, driest warming period, which melted much of the world's glaciers and rose sea levels by about 300 feet. There's also a site off of Gujarat, India, and they're finding it's an extensive city, also at about the same depth. Uh, And these are places that are just being discovered, just being sampled. Um, And then, like I said, with this uh, new one in the Grand Canyon, I put it up on Facebook. A lot of people seized on it and took a look themselves, found it on Google Earth. I've just been fascinated combing through it and looking at its location. And one of the uh, speakers who's going to be at the Orlando conference I'm going to be at in two weeks is Elena Danin. She's a remote viewer. She, I asked her if she would take a look at it and see what it was. She said, definitely human-made, 
but very, very old, probably even older than the Egyptians. She put it at 60,000 years old. Now, when I think of time frames like that, whether it's through remote viewing, Brad, or it's through uh, architectural and uh, scientific analysis, I think that clearly if anything like this was built 40, 50, 60,000, even if it was 10,000, 12,000 years ago, we're talking about a civilization that would have needed hundreds of years, presumably, to even develop the technological capabilities to build something like that, which puts the foundation of that civilization even further back into the past. Well, that's right. And you and I are both students of the esoteric, and we've become familiar with Elena Blavatsky. She speaks about the root races and five different civilizations, very high-tech civilizations that existed on this earth. Most of us are familiar with Atlantis or Lemuria before that, but the oldest is the Hyperborean civilization that's actually millions of years old. And that would explain the out-of-place artifacts, the upas, such as uh, gears found in a seam of coal that is dated at 2 million years old in Siberia. I have a picture of it in modern esoteric. And so this kind of ties in all of these upas, these out-of-place artifacts, to many of these high civilizations that existed on this planet so long ago. What do you make of the Klerkstorp spheres? I've asked a lot of people about this. Uh, another friend of mine who is uh, an archaeologist, and uh, they're fascinating. If you've ever seen these things in Africa, they look like little tiny death stars, but they were found in, uh, yeah. from what I understand, ancient strata. I'm not sure if I'm correct about that, but what do you know about the Klerkstorp spheres? I think they fall into that do- category. Oh, yes, they do indeed. And, of course, they are from strata that is also million-some-plus years Those orbs, that's very interesting you brought that up, Ryan, because different size orbs, including very large ones that are found in Central America, uh, Panama, and Costa Rica, it, it, it appears to me that there's some kind of ball bearings. Now, those ones, I believe, are made out of a kind of metal that doesn't rust, kind of like the pillar of Ahsoka in India. That's an iron pillar that never rusts. So there's some kind of metallurgy science that was employed back then that we're still playing catch up and we're not even sure how to make iron or steel that doesn't rust uh, in in such a way that these findings uh, show us. I was reading this interesting story. I sent this to you. Back in the 1950s and 60s, Brad, scientists invented a pair of Uh, metals that were very conductive of electricity. They were called hediate and brisenite, I think is how you pronounce them. And a few years after they created these artificially in a lab, they were trying to create a metal that was more conductive. Scientists started finding um, these same metals that were artificially created in meteors. And some scientists believe, it's a good topic for late night radio, that these are perhaps techno signatures of an ancient civilization but, you know, it might just be the fact that we made these things, we made these metals, and then we started to recognize them in the natural environment. But whatever the case is, there is so much beyond our world that we don't understand. But when we make these things like this in a laboratory and we develop these kinds of things today, you know, we look at human existence as only being a few thousand years. We obviously give a, a time span of a few thousand years or tens of thousands of years based on the evidence here on planet Earth. 
And whether we're talking about aliens or we're talking about humans, uh, the, the amazing achievements that can be had in such a short period of time, I think we are only scratching the bare surface, if even that, of what is possible and what we have um, in terms of human history alone on this planet. I, I think the possibilities are not only endless, they are unfathomable, uh, the level of technology that can be obtained uh, through technological and scientific study. It just blows the mind, and there really aren't words for it. And then when you incorporate new technology, such as side-scan sonar that is also detecting underwater complexes, such as the one off of the western portion of Cuba, which is almost a mile deep. So that one would have had to sunk with a cataclysm, the continents rising and falling, what we would commonly know as a polar shift when the poles shift direction and then that sets off a whole bunch of volcanic activity and is that magnetic rise and fall. Is that a magnetic shift or a physical shift? Well, it's a physical shift. And the evidence is also underwater discovered one great piece of evidence by Jacques Cousteau was going down into some of those uh, caves off the Yucatan and finding that the uh, stalagmites and stalactites, which often have to grow straight up, straight down because it's created by dripping water and the different minerals in that water uh, cling together. It's a very slow process that creates those long fingers you see in caves coming down from the ceilings and also absorbing those minerals and building up little towers from below. He found those stalagmites and stalactites at a 45 degree angle, way deep down in some of these, uh, ciniotas. I think that's what it's called. Those, uh, sinkholes in the Yucatan way deep down there. And how could those cave features have been formed any other way but a dry cave and then tilted at a 40 degree angle like there was some great cataclysmic event that shifted the land force form in 45 degree angle. So we're talking about magnetic reversal, magnetic shifting, and then also like an earth crust displacement. Well, that's correct. And it's interesting that right now, the magnetic poles, and I talk about this in my Hidden Anomalies of Antarctica presentation, both magnetic poles are on the move. Usually they kind of bounce around. Our northern magnetic pole was in the northern Hudson Bay. Now it is racing across the Arctic Ocean towards Siberia. Conversely, in the southern hemisphere on Antarctica, the magnetic North Pole has actually left the continent and it's moving up towards Australia. So it's maybe a telltale sign that if there were to be a pole shift coming up, that the next pole would be between Antarctica and Australia, which would, of course, freeze Australia like it did to Antarctica, thaw out portions of Antarctica to see what's under there, but also freeze northern Siberia. Boy, it's cold there now, but it could get real cold and really send all of uh, Europe, northern Europe and 
northern Russia into another ice age. You know, I read about this. I did a show on this maybe three, four years ago because I was at an airport in Palm Springs and our flight got delayed and then it got delayed a second time. And then we got on a third plane and then they delayed it and canceled it. And we had to stay in Palm Springs. And I was thinking it was real weird because they were telling us that they couldn't take any planes off. And then we we looked out the window and planes were taking off. And we said, what about those planes? They said, oh, well, those planes were already scheduled. I said, well, our plane was scheduled. So I started to look it up and I just, I don't know how I came across it. Uh, Tampa Bay International Airport, which is where I'm from in Tampa, Florida. Uh, In the UK, they've had to do this at airports in Las Vegas, airports all over the world. They've had to shut part of the airport down. They've had to repaint the runways and they've had to reassign flights, delay flights and move flights because the magnetic poles shifted so quickly in a short period of time that the computer systems on board the planes, if they had taken them off, wouldn't be able to find the airport. You ever heard of that? Oh yeah, sure have. And this is the reason why uh, a lot of the compasses and settings GPS is actually changing and moving because these magnetic North Pole and South Pole are on the move. If you were to use a regular compass, and of course, anyone who's sailed a boat or knows about uh, mariners and how they navigated, using a compass is absolutely essential. Well, if that compass point is going to a different location, same with airplanes, uh, that you're going to have to update your system. Now, just to clarify the different kind of poles, of course, there are the uh, geographic poles where the very top of the planet spins like a top with the bottom on the South Pole. Those are consistent, but that's not what compasses will detect. They detect the magnetic poles. And there's also in uh, Antarctica, there is the pole of relative obscurity, the farthest point away from any... uh, civilization or landmass. And you also have the geomagnetic pole. There are actually four different kind of poles in the Southern hemisphere. So, uh, that geomagnetic pole is also picking up on, uh, the geomagnetic. So a lot of the, uh, the, uh, Northern lights are down in the Southern continent. They're called, uh, the Southern light or Australia, uh, Aurora Australis. Uh, in the Northern Hemisphere, it's Aurora Borealis. Those take place over the geomagnetic poles. And that is part of that phenomenon of those lights that can be seen. So, yeah, the poles, the, the magnetic North Poles and the South Pole are the most important for navigation. And that's why they continually have to uh, change their settings for the runways and GPS. If I remember this correctly, the the magnetic North Pole was discovered sometime in like the early 1800s, like 1830s. And uh, I I just pulled this up from NASA.gov, that that pole since the 1830s, roughly around that time period, the last few hundred years, has moved north-northwest by 600 miles. And the last article I read about it, it's moving, it was 10 miles per year to 34 miles per year. So that's pretty rapid. It's not like it just moves from one side of the earth to the other overnight, but 34 miles per year is pretty quick. A couple hundred miles over a a few centuries is pretty quick. So we might look at that because we just discovered these things officially a few hundred years ago and think that this is abnormal. 
But maybe from uh, the evidence we have, uh, those underwater cities, etc., this is quite normal on planet Earth. This is part of a natural process. And, and a lot of uh, geologists have a hard time believing that these pole shifts would happen as quickly as they do, that geology is a very slow process. So these magnetic anomalies should not be happening as quickly as they are, but they do occur in this way. So it does suggest that there could be another pole shift on the horizon. The last one was precipitated by this uh, younger driest period of cooling when you had uh, all the glaciers on the continent trapping all the fresh water and lowering the ocean levels. And then eventually there was a heating process when those glaciers melted and then the ocean levels rose and covered up a lot of these uh, sites. So archaeologists are a little stubborn in their ways, Ryan. They don't really want to admit yes, they that are. Uh, destruction could be as quickly as a couple of days and new continents rising out of the oceans and other ones sinking down. Well, of course. And that's just like what we heard with the uh, story of Atlantis, what happened in a very sudden instant. Well, archaeologists, scientists, even religious-minded people, it's just human nature, it seems, and I think a lot of it's based on ego, tend to reject finds that don't conform to preconceived notions. So whether you're a scientist or an archaeologist or you're a, a, a religious-minded individual, if you find information that doesn't conform to your belief system, we, we tend to reject it. Um, and when I, I mean, some of the stuff, though, if not all of this stuff, is, is hard to reject. I mean, when you look at, you mentioned Yonaguni, which is recent. When did they discover that? A few years ago or just, when was just that? Just about a decade ago. About a decade ago, so that's that's very relatively recent. Um, these yep. pi- these pyramids in Mexico, I was reading about the House of Thirteen Heavens. Uh, these were relatively recent. They were just there in Mexico relatively recently. They discovered those. Um, but when you look at all these other, like Nan Madal, um, you look at that unbelievably massive pyramid in China that they thought was a mountain. I think it's called Xi'an or something like that. Um, all these yep. anonymous, anomalous artifacts. So we mentioned the Clerkstorp spheres, the Antikythera machine. And people know the Baghdad battery, but there's so many others. Um, none of this is something that can be disputed. Uh, I think people argue over who's responsible for it. Is it aliens? Is it you know gods? Is it chariots and of, of fire that came down from the heavens? Is it human civilization? But one thing that's not and should not be debated is that this stuff exists. It's here now. And uh, we can look at it if we have the opportunity to go to those museums or to travel around the world like you've done. But I wanted to ask you a different question. What about the possibility of, of rather than like Smithsonian Gate, where the Smithsonian reportedly has gotten rid of so many artifacts and giant bones, etc. What about the possibility of almost like staging uh, artifacts and staging uh, 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 things that can rewrite history in a different way than just simply getting rid of them. Like I read this story out of China about a skull that was a million years old and they say the skull is a million years old. It redefines human history. And I was just thinking a skull is something very simple that could, the science perhaps could be manufactured. Uh, You ever thought about that or heard about anything like that? Maybe they could manufacture history by faking these kinds of things rather than just destroying them. Yeah, I, I have heard of that. And, and that does occur every once and again. When they were first excavating all the mound sites, mostly in the Midwest, um, where I grew up in Wisconsin, Illinois, mostly Ohio, 
they would find giant bones. And this is a big story. Uh, my colleagues, no pun intended, and Jim Vieira did giants on record. It's a 500 page book of newspaper headlines of all these giants. They found. And there was a guy who got a skull of a great ape. I think it was a gorilla and he buried it. And then the news seized on that rather than the findings and rewriting history. They picked up the, it's a proven fake. Now we know where these giant bones are coming from. So it was used as a way to dismiss all this too. So that does happen. It does happen. All right. Well, Brad Olson is our guest this evening. Where can uh, listeners find the books? The esoteric series. The new one is beyond esoteric. Yeah. Go to cccpublishing.com. That's my publishing website where mine and other authors books can be found and sign copies. If you get one off CCC publishing. All right. CCC publishing our website, www.thesecretteachings.info. If you'd like to reach out to me this evening, or if you have an email, you'd like me to forward to Brad RD G A B L E at yahoo.com. Maybe at some point in the near future, we'll get back to taking calls, but at the moment, rdgable at yahoo.com. Again, our website, thesecretteachings.info. And CCC Publishing is Brad's website, the Esoteric Book Series. you got to pick these books up. I've got all three of them on my library shelf here in the studio. Really incredible reads. We'll keep you reading hours into the night. I was reading Beyond Esoteric last night at like midnight, kind of getting ready for tonight's show. Brad Olson, our guest. Again, I'm Ryan Gable. More after this. The music tonight, White Bat Audio. Stay with us. More coming up. Hi, it's David Childress from Ancient Aliens, and you're listening to The Secret Teachings. You're listening to The Secret Teachings. For more information on the show or to contact Ryan, visit thesecretteachings.info or email ryan at rdgable at yahoo.com. Hey, this is John Peasy at johnpeasy.com, and I'm here with Ryan Gable from The Secret Teachings. So it's taken months, but my new book, Liberty Shrugged, is finally available. Nearly 700 pages with archived images, it will leave you fascinated and wanting more. See, hatred for America and the Constitution is based on misconceptions of history and the rule of law. Charges of racism, sexism, and bigotry don't hold up to history and context. They stem from nullifiers who wanted to replace the Constitution and maintain hierarchy, as with the Confederate Constitution, which aimed to preserve the institution of slavery. But racism was not the foundation of that institution. It was a final justification to defend an institution which had existed forever and for which Western civilization and colonialism was actually taking steps to end. Africans and Arabs organized slave trading far exceeding anything in the Atlantic, and some continue to this day. Also, a woman's role in household duties was as systemic as a man's role in the legislature or on the battlefield. Indian tribes, when they weren't at war with one another, were choosing sides with the Europeans. See, we can't address history from the air-conditioned seats of a progressive university and pass judgments on men, women, and events that we know nothing about. My book, Liberty Shrugged, attempts to dispel countless historical, cultural, and social myths in order to find an objective understanding of history, the present, and the future. It's Liberty Shrugged at www.thesecretteachings.info. I hope you'll get a copy today for yourself, for your friends, for your family. I think you'll really enjoy it. If anyone can hear this broadcast, I'm still on Earth. This is the frequency of Ground Zero Radio. Ground Zero with Clyde Lewis and The Secret Teachings with myself, Brian Gable.
you could listen to this. And again, you know, people say David has no evidence. David has no evidence. I hate this channel. Or you could listen to The Secret Teachings with myself, Ryan Gable, five nights a week on Ground Zero Radio. Join us to explore the outer limits of history, symbolism, parapolitics, and more. We'll explore a little bit of everything, but don't take my word for it. I'm kind of like you. I'm the last of a dying breed, a generalist. That's The Secret Teachings, five nights a week on Ground Zero Radio. This is Kev Baker of The Kev Baker Show, and you're listening to The Secret Teachings with Ryan Gable. Thanks, Ryan. This is David Knight with thedavidknightshow.com, and you're listening to The Secret Teaching. Broadcasting from somewhere between the normal and abnormal. A collection of question marks. No reason, no explanation. Just a prolonged nightmare in which fear, loneliness, and the unexplainable walk hand in hand through the shadows. It's The Secret Teachings on Ground Zero Radio. Welcome back to the Secret Teachings radio broadcast. I'm your host, Ryan Gable. Hour number two tonight. Our guest, Brad Olson of the Esoteric Book Series and CCC Publishing. If you'd like to contact the show, rdgable at yahoo.com. Of course, our website, www.thesecretteachings.info. You can also find this article. I was reading this before the show. I put it up on our Facebook page under the show promo. The Valley of the Virgin, just about 30 miles outside of the city of San Miguel de Allende in Mexico's Central Highlands. I hope I pronounced that right. These massive pyramidal structures, one more massive than the others. The first one is called the House of the Thirteen Heavens, built, they say, around 540 CE. The other smaller structures, the House of the Wind and the House of the Longest Night. And they believe that these structures were built for keeping time. Uh, the main structure is supposedly designed to align with Letha, the summer solstice, and Yule, the winter solstice, also Maybon and Ostara, the fall equinox and spring equinox. And obviously they were used perhaps for agricultural purposes, if all of that information is accurate. Um, I thought this was interesting. They actually helped uh, build these things with prickly pear cactus, nopal. So the sticky juice of the cactus, which I've got outside of my, uh, my, my place here, the studio here in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, if you ever had the uh, prickly pear, it's a very delicious little jam you can make out of it. Uh, they used it to construct some of these uh, pyramidal structures. And according to the archaeologists, I find this interesting. Uh, they found skeletal remains uh, and DNA that uh, relate to several different species uh, of human, if you will, several different tribes, several different civilizations. They, they thought this was like a multicultural hub. The other thing that was really interesting is that they don't believe the people who built this, which is much more ancient than, than even ancient Mexico, they're saying. They believe that they didn't worship a deity. Instead, they worshiped space and time. They worshiped life itself. They worshiped the sun uh, in one way or another. That's pretty incredible. And once again, it's another one of those seemingly random things i just came across it randomly on the internet searching for show ideas 
and another story that sort of redefines our understanding, at least of Mexico and South America, uh, but of course the rest of uh, human civilization as well. As we said tonight earlier with Brad, we are finding these kinds of things almost weekly. Uh, one I didn't know about was uh, Yonaguni, and I wanted to ask you about Yonaguni again. Can you can you spell that first of all, Brad? And can you tell us uh, where exactly this is and I was wondering if, if the amount of uh, water above it, you said a few hundred feet, is there a correlation between other underwater sites that are also about the same depth uh, and that there could be a, a time period relationship between uh, these various sites around the world, if that makes sense? Yeah, it sure does. And that's a great question. Yonaguni is spelled pretty much as it sounds, Y-O-N-A-G-U-N-I. And it is located on the island of Yonaguni, which is the southernmost of the Okinawa island chain off of southern Japan. It's, it's managed by Japan's government, but it's very close to Taiwan. And the archaeological underwater site is just offshore. Uh, a lot of people have been going scuba diving there. It's uh, probably giving quite a boost to the uh, local economy tourism coming down there to, to see this. And your second question is really spot on Ryan, because a lot of these underwater ruins are at that 300 to 50 feet below sea level. So they would all have been on dry land when you can construct something like a megalithic uh, temple road or carve out of the rocket, such as Yonaguni. Give you some examples. Off the coast of southern Florida is the island of Bimini. And Bimini is an island in the Bahamas. Bimini has what's known as the Bimini Roads, which is not so deep, only about 50 feet deep. You could actually snorkel that site, but it's better to uh, scuba dive it. And it's an L-shaped megalithic formation. Now, what's interesting about uh, megaliths underwater, especially, is that Mother Nature does not create in perfect right angles, not put together as precisely as the Bimini Roads. What's also interesting is that in one of his readings, way back in the 1920s or 1930s, Edward Casey, Edgar Casey, the sleeping prophet, had said that evidence of Atlantis would be found in 1968. He named the year precisely, and that's when the Bimini Roads were discovered. So, that's a good example of uh, underwater ruins at this level. I mentioned off the uh, coast of Gujarat in India is another site that's not too deep, as well as uh, Yonaguni, which could only have been carved during the last ice age when all this uh, ice was trapped and the sea levels were lower. Then you have places like... Uh, uh, Dongerland off the coast of the UK when you could walk to England right up to the uh, White Cliffs of Dover. That, that, from- place, that place is incredible. I talked with Jared Murphy about that a couple of months ago. That place is something I had never heard of, and he pointed it out to me, and my mind was blown. Yeah. I, I'm 
thinking about doing another uh, presentation for the conferences called Underwater Archaeology, and certainly that would uh, that would be, be fascinating. That would be fascinating. It would there's, be there, 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 and as you said, there's so many of these places all over the world, and I'm sure that we're going to discover more and more of them. Uh, and and that also, you know, I, I would say that is maybe more recent in, in some uh, geological terms. But when we're talking about artifacts that are found in strata millions of years old, or I pulled out a folder here in my studio, Brad, and I have, I've got articles, I've done shows on these before. I've got articles that uh, are saying uh, human skeletal remains going back millions of years, oldest human footprints, uh, just article after article after article last year, this year, the year before that. Uh, I mean, obviously, there is a difference between modern humans and uh, more prehistoric humans, if you will. But I've, I've got articles that are suggesting that more modern humans, if not totally homo sapiens sapiens, were around uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of years ago. We, we really don't know. You brought it up in the uh, beginning of our conversation, creationism versus evolution. And I wanted to make the point, maybe there's a third factor that we need to consider. And that is some of our DNA, which a lot, for, first of all, we have many different kinds of DNA in the human genome, uh, up to 12 different isolated types. For example, every one of us is a little bit of a reptilian. We have the reptilian brain in the back of our head and there's a certain percentage of our DNA that has reptilian DNA in it. And you know this because it's the fight or flight response. It's kind of our natural way of self-defense if we're confronted with a potential enemy. You either run away or you uh, turn around and face your enemy and try to fight it out. And so the human race is quite unique because we also have this factor called the RH negative blood factor, and I know it quite well because it's in my family. My grandmother had a second son who was named Douglas, and my grandmother is RH negative blood type, so is my dad. But Uncle Douglas was born with RH positive blood, and the blood from my grandmother contaminated his blood upon birth, and he died after five days. He became what was called back then a blue blood baby because his whole body turned blue as his young fledgling immune system was trying to fight off this uh, RH negative blood, which eventually killed him. <clears throat> and I say it's unique with humans only because no other animal has this distinction where a mother can kill its own offspring with a different incompatible blood type could that I, i'm not sure how you feel about the standard uh, monkey theory of evolution but wouldn't that also in a way disprove evolution if monkeys also don't have uh that rh factor yeah well exactly and that's why i say there we should incorporate a third factor in here because rh stands for rhesus monkey and devoid of the rh protein the RH negative blood types are not evolved from apes. So it does throw the whole evolutionary construct into a tizzy because 15% of the human race are RH negative. And it's almost always clustered 
in certain groups of humans. So for example, my family's from uh, Scandinavia and Germany, uh, Northern Germany, high incidence of RH negative blood type. The Celtic people, very high incidence of RH negative blood type. The highest of all are the Basque people of the Pyrenees mountain region between Spain and France. There's also a big cluster of RH negative blood types in Morocco up in the Atlas mountains where some of the native people have red hair, multicolored eyes and fair skin. They're not Arabic at all. So there were clusters of these people that uh, carried over this RH negative blood type. And indeed Edgar Casey also goes on to say that those were the survivors of Atlantis. Those that came ashore and then reformed civilization and they were these RH negative blood types. Well, we also have uncontacted, quote unquote, uncontacted tribes in the world today. We, we can also assume there are probably more than we know about. And our level of technology, Brad, you know, we have uh, cars, we have tablets, we have rockets is beyond anything that these people could probably imagine if we could speak to them. But if we go back 10, 15, 20,000 years, maybe we go back 100 or 1,000 or a million years uh, and we find this evidence of an ancient civilization, there were likely groups of people then that might have also been uncontacted tribes. I, I can kind of assume that. Just It's just a thought. Uh, and perhaps uh, over time, uh, there was uh, almost like uh, just a moment ago, I mentioned these pyramids, and I said that when they did the, the genetic uh, sequencing of the DNA on the skeletons, I, I thought for a moment I misspoke. I said they, they said that it goes back to different species of, of humans. But I don't know if that is I don't know if that is a misspoken term. I think maybe humans really do come from a variety of different species uh, that we're not we're all human, but we're a different kind of human and, and not just based on hair color and eye color and skin color, per se, uh, but that there are different types of species of humans. And I think the RH factor really kind of proves that uh, in terms of the blood. Well, yeah, it sure does. And it, and it certainly throws the whole evolutionary uh, theory that we all ascended from apes uh, into a tizzy. Now you could say that the 85% of us who have RH positive blood do have a marker in our DNA in our blood type that traces back to the great apes. But then you have this group that doesn't. So this is the third grouping that I think needs to factor in. And as far as creationism being created, well, everything eventually somehow gets created. But what about the creation through DNA manipulation, through certainly, cloning, certainly. through science is now creating new hybrid species? We're creating synthetic species. We're creating hybrid species, chimera. We're creating artificial intelligence. I mean, we're creating things today that were science fiction just 50 years ago. Give us another 100 years, 200 years. Give another species, another race of beings on another planet uh, a few thousand years, a few million years. And, and it's really unfathomable uh, the, the, the types of things that could be developed and created. That's why I think when we hear about the idea, we think about the idea, we debate the idea that the universe is kind of like the mind of God. And everything within existence is an extension of that mind. That's the macrocosm. But within our own mind, Brad, as you very well know, we create our own reality. It's not as simple as it sounds. It's a little more philosophical, but we do create our own reality. We, we can create how we feel and the life we choose to live. 
That is all a manifestation. It's a directionalizing of our will. And we are creating things in a microcosm in the same way that the mind of God, if you will, the universe is creating things in a macrocosm. It's an extension of uh, consciousness, which I find it interesting, as you know, as an esoteric researcher, if you go back to the Rosicrucians had this idea and a lot of other secret orders, if you will, had this idea that humans didn't necessarily um, come about as a result of creation in, in the Genesis sense, and they didn't evolve in the traditional Darwinian sense. The way that humans evolved were from different elemental uh, components. So we have the elemental world, we have the mineral world, the plant world, and then the human uh, world after the animal world, the demigod, and the god world. So we have seven different worlds, seven days of creation, seven levels of consciousness. So humans evolved from elemental uh, factors and uh, mineral factors, which is all Frank Baum's The Wizard of Oz, The Tin Man, The Scarecrow, and The Lion, uh, through animal factors, and then we became human. So there's a whole mix of things that when you put them together, uh, creationism, evolution, technological manipulation, if you will, genetic manipulation, and these esoteric concepts, I think it makes a lot more sense when you put it all together rather than keeping things separate. That's my opinion. And we know that there's been quite a bit of editing when it comes to our distant past. For example, all of these findings that are coming out. National Geographic held out for the longest time saying Yonaguni was a natural formation. They finally had to admit it, that it's impossible. If you look at the site, there's so many right angles and plateaus and plazas and carvings, even a site on the uh, Yonaguni Plateau that they call the Triangular Pool uh, and these different terraces and arch gates. So it seems like there's a great cover-up to keep us ignorant of our high-tech antediluvian civilization past. But at the same time, when they're pretty much busted and say, okay, well, I guess we got to admit to that one. And then what do they do? They, in that National Geographic admission of Yonaguni, they just have to throw a jab and, well, conspiracy theorists say that it links to Lemuria rather than taking an honest approach and looking at the evidence. So you know what I'm talking about, Ryan. We just get sick of this after a while. They just keep belittling us for looking into these mysteries and drawing conclusions that they're afraid to make themselves. Which is the ultimate anti-scientific stance to take, condemning things without investigating them or dismissing them upon investigation because they don't conform to preconceived notions. This is the anti-scientific method. This is not even, uh, I don't even know if I'd say it's anti-science. It's, it's unnatural. It's very egotistic and it's very self-centered and very reserved and it's very stagnating. It's very inhibiting. And in fact, I looked up this uh, underwater city, as they call it, lost city off the coast of Cuba, um, which I've, I've heard about before. And I've, I've uh, heard on other radio shows, people talking about this. I think I heard you mention this on a, on a show the other night. Um, and I, I pulled up this article. Uh, one of the top searches is that the underwater lost city is just what you said about Yonaguni. It's a, quote, natural phenomena, says scientists. <laughs> I mean, to, to me, Brad, I wake up every morning and I just find that I have so much energy because whether I'm studying this or something similar or something totally unrelated, 
There's so much to learn. There's so much to explore. There's so much adventure in the world. I don't want to be stagnant on a certain belief system. That's why I do this show. And that's why I love talking to you because you've been all over the world. You've seen a lot of this stuff firsthand and we're still making discoveries every single day. Yeah, we sure are. And then when you have something like this underwater city off of Cuba, 750 meters below, that's 2,475 feet down. Uh, it just defies any logical explanation such as being created during the last ice age. It's way too deep for that. And so then that calls into question uh, high civilizations before the last pole shift. How could this be natural formations too? If you look at the pictures that came back from the radar, three pyramids in a row with uh, square building formations and other sub buildings around these pyramids, uh, to me, it looks like a Mayan city deep below the water. So again, this redefines our view of ancient history and who some of these builders might have been. But I'll tell you an interesting anecdote about this underwater city off of Cuba. It was mentioned by Bob Lazar back in the late 80s when he was making a bunch of his confessions. He said they knew about this place since the 60s or 70s. And they also found some kind of flying craft, a Vimana or some kind of UFO down there. And the alphabet agencies, whichever one it was, went and grabbed it and brought it up, brought it to Area 51 for backward engineering. And he said Edward Teller, who's known as the father of the H-bomb and who hired Bob Lazar himself personally, he ordered that the device that created the energy to fly this thing, he wanted it to see what it was and he ordered it uh, to be cut open and it actually exploded, killing all of the uh, scientists that were working on it. So then Edward Teller needed some new scientists and that's when he brought in Bob Lazar. He told this story about this underwater city off of Cuba many years before it was officially discovered. And so once again, Bob Lazar is uh, exonerated <laughs> for what uh, so many people have tried to say and dismiss him as uh, making it all up. But he just keeps getting uh, <laughs> the props that what he was talking about was true all along. A lot of archaeologists say Atlantis can't exist because there's no proof of it. And uh, they don't find reference to Atlantis. And I remember Mr. Han Hancock said, well, that's because they called it something different in different parts of the world. And that made me think um, maybe Atlantis was a specific location, but is it possible Atlantis was sort of part of a legend or part of a myth of um, ancient civilizations in general, something that has come down through the ages? Yes, we know Plato wrote slightly about it, but that Atlantis was kind of more like a concept that it referenced maybe different locations, not just a singular location. Well, a concept. I mean, what's a concept? It's just an idea, a thought form. Well, I'd say it's more than that because there is physical evidence that it exists. You know, another good one that's at that uh, lower level that uh, would be exposed if uh, there was another ice age that was also found quite recently is this underwater Great Pyramid off of the Azores Islands. Uh, 
in the Atlantic, pretty close to where Plato said Atlantis would exist beyond the pillars of Hercules, which is regarded as Gibraltar. So just a few years ago, here's a uh, fisherman who's using his sonar looking for a school of fish and 40 meters under the surface, he finds the top of a pyramid, a perfect four-sided pyramid with a flat top and using his navigational instruments, came back with some pictures of it. It's located, the top of the pyramid's 40 meters, but it goes all the way down to 350 meters. So this is a big pyramid, and it's located between Salm and Terracira Islands in the Azores. Is it, Another fascinating find. Is reason so I- it's more than just a concept. There's physical evidence to this stuff. Well, no, there is. And that's, that's not what I meant by, by concept. I mean, you know, you have researchers that point out that Atlantis, if we're talking specifically about Atlantis, that it can be found in different places. I've even heard uh, part of Antarctica might be Atlantis because of an earth crust displacement over thousands of years. No, I see what you're saying now. And, but it, it's kind of like the way that Troy was considered mythical until uh, Shieldman went there and excavated right, in Western right. Turkey and actually found it. Similarly, there was this rumored underwater city in the Mediterranean Sea off of Alexandria, Egypt, called Heracleon. And it, too, has just been discovered in the last decade or two. And now they're pulling up big statues of pharaohs and steles with uh, hieroglyphs on it proving once again that there are sunken underwater cities in a lot of these locations that could have been, and I wouldn't say Atlantis was one singular location, but it was probably a high civilization that had outposts or different smaller cities all around the the world, perhaps. That's kind of also what I was alluding to. And, 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 And then I'm also thinking like Gobekli Tepe, they've only, what, unearthed five, 10% of that? And oh, yeah. even in Egypt, I think the number, it's like a ridiculously low number of what they've actually uncovered. So even places that are already incredible, already timeless, already define the imagination and what we know about history and archaeology, uh, those places are only slightly uncovered, like a few percentage points uncovered. And, and that alone is uh, beyond belief, Brad. Yeah, it sure is. And I'll tell you, when I was down in Antarctica about four years ago, we got ashore at the Palmer base, which is an American base and off of, uh, the Palmer peninsula, one of the areas in Antarctica that quite paradoxically is melting and showing signs of that. And other parts of Antarctica paradoxically are actually gaining ice. And, uh, that's why the sea levels aren't having this drastic rise. But so when we went outside, he pointed out, he said, look at that island out there. That is what we call Pie Island. It was discovered on Pie Day in the middle of March when the, the bridge over to Anvers Island, where the Palmer base is located, broke off and melted, exposing a new island. So even islands are being discovered to this day. And some of those early maps, such as the Piri Reese map, shows islands off of Antarctica that are still yet discovered, that are still 
encapsulated in ice. I want to talk about that when we come back from break, the Perry Rees map and other ancient maps. Brad Olson is our guest this evening, Esoteric Book Series, the new book, Beyond Esoteric, CCC Publishing. I'm Ryan Gable. This is The Secret Teachings. There's more after this with Brad Olson. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to The Secret Teachings. For more information on the show or to contact Ryan, visit thesecretteachings.info or email ryan at rdgable at yahoo.com. Hey, this is John Peasy at johnpeasy.com, and I'm here with Ryan Gable from The Secret Teachings. Want to hear more of The Secret Teachings radio show? Search for the show on any radio or podcast player or find links and a free archive at thesecretteachings.info. If you want to get rid of those annoying ads and get extra perks like access to the montage archive, digital copies of Ryan's books, and early access to the show, then subscribe to the full show archive at thesecretteachings.info. Visit the website and click the button that says subscribe. You can do so monthly, yearly, or through a one-time donation. Your support always keeps the secret teachings on the air. If you enjoy the secret teachings and want to hold years of Ryan's research in your hands, visit the website and grab a physical and digital copy of Ryan's books. Occult Arcana will introduce you to sacred myths, folklore, magic, and alchemy. The technological elixir will take you from transhumanism and AI to black goo and UFOs. Food philosophy will change your mind about what we call food, germ theory, and geoengineering. And remember, shipping is always included. Some restrictions exist for international. Visit thesecretteachings.info. I hope that you'll check out my new book, Liberty Shrugged. I wrote Liberty Shrugged to provide historical context and to dispel many of the myths that we learn about in American history. Inside the nearly 700-page book, you'll learn about meritocracy, the differences between civil liberties and civil rights, and how Western civilization didn't start slavery, but ended it as an institution that had existed for thousands of years. How many of the Founding Fathers did indeed own slaves, but what was peculiar about this was that these men would fight to end the institution for a variety of reasons. We look at the real causes of the American Revolution and the American Civil War. We prove without a doubt that slavery was in no way, shape, or form the cause of current socioeconomic issues which affect all people regardless of their color. In other words, this book dispels countless divisive social, cultural, and historical myths in an attempt to objectively find humble gratefulness in the American experience. Get your copy of Liberty Shrugged at thesecretteachings.info in softcover or digital. This is Kev Baker of The Kev Baker Show, and you're listening to The Secret Teachings with Ryan Gable. Thanks, Ryan. This is David Knight with thedavidknightshow.com, and you're listening to The Secret Teachings. If anyone can hear this broadcast, I'm still on Earth. This is the frequency of Ground Zero Radio, Ground Zero with Clyde Lewis, and The Secret Teachings with myself, Ryan Gable. Brad Olson is our guest this evening here on The Secret Teachings. I'm your host, Ryan Gable. The most reliable way to listen to the show for future reference is groundzero.radio and the Aftermath FM app. You can also search The Secret Teachings on any radio or podcast player or application and listen and download the show for free. If you'd like to get rid of those advertisements, though, you can always subscribe to the archive on our website to get access to all those same shows. 
the player on the website with those shows, a private RSS feed to plug into your application with those ad-free shows, my books, and our montage archive, www.thesecretteachings.info. Brad Olson is a good friend of mine. Brad Olson has written some incredible books, the Esoteric Book Series. I'd highly recommend you go and check those books out. And uh, Brad, I was looking through your book last night, and uh, I had it sitting next to my Charles Hapgood book, Maps of the Ancient Sea Kings. Um, And I'm looking through this book and all these different maps, and I know that you've been talking about the Perry Rees map recently. I know a lot of listeners have heard about that. Tell us a little bit about that map and some of these other ancient sea king maps and and what they mean and what they imply, because these aren't artifacts. These are, are, are documented uh, or I could just say they're documents uh, that prove a paper a paper trail, uh, if you will, to the other incredible uh, megalithic, monolithic, and artifacts uh, that we find all throughout uh, the world. Yeah, indeed. That's the premise that I make with my presentation, Early Maps in the Builder Race, starting with that book by Charles Hapgood, Maps of the Ancient Sea Kings, Evidence of Advanced Civilization in the Ice Age. We've been talking so much about the Ice Age and before the Ice Age and artifacts that uh, may still be trapped under the ice. And a lot of these maps, and I go through about a half a dozen different maps of the earliest representations of all the continents during the Age of Discovery. And all the while, you see Antarctica down there. And it wasn't until... Captain Cook did his circumnavigation of the uh, Southern Ocean, which is now recognized as the fifth ocean of the world. And a new map came out called the Southern Icy Ocean, which then does not include Antarctica. So this is a later map of 1794 by Samuel Dunn, which depicts both hemispheres and shows the continents quite accurately, including Australia, which was the last continent before Antarctica was discovered in 1821. And it was because of Cook's circumnavigation of Antarctica from 1768 to 1771 in his ship called the Resolution. He came back and published his findings saying that Southern oceans were filled with seals and whales And that's what prompted all of these merchant Marines to go down there and hunt uh, for seal blubber to light their lamps and so forth and get the hides from the seals. And that's who discovered Antarctica. Not one of the great explorers during the age of discovery, but just a random uh, seal boat. And they set foot on the Palmer Peninsula. But just before then, Antarctica disappeared from the old map. But then when you go back to the Piri Reese map, which is truly remarkable map drawn in 1513. And it says in the liner notes that it was drawn from source maps that are much older, even some dating from the library of Alexandria, implying that the Americas were mapped thousands of years before Columbus. And this Piri Reese map, was only 21 years after Columbus, who to his dying day, Columbus thought that he had discovered islands off of Asia, the Spice Islands, which is what he was trying to go 
and discover by doing that different route, not even knowing until his dying day that he had uh, been the discoverer of the Americas. Now, some people might disagree with that. Uh, Scott Walter, I don't know if you remember Scott Walter. He wrote a book. Scott Walter's a great guy. And Scott Walter wrote a book where he talked about the bloodline connection of uh, Christopher Columbus. And I thought this interesting. Uh, Henry Sinclair of Scotland, uh, the Earl of Orkney, uh, reportedly followed Leif Erikson, and he made a voyage to North America. This was before Columbus. Uh, and Columbus was married to one of the descendants of Sinclair and uh, reportedly had access to the treasure trove of Sinclair and the Templars. You know, they went to Scotland uh, at one point um, after the purge from Europe. Uh, and the idea is basically that Christopher Columbus had knowledge of what he was doing. So, I mean, it's it's kind of interesting that there's like there's evidence for both things. There's evidence for him knowing where he was going and then evidence till his dying day that he didn't believe that he had discovered what we, we kind of think he might have had access to in terms of maps. So how do you interpret that? Yeah, and I, I, I could say we're both probably on the right track here because back in the day, cartography was one of the greatest pieces of knowledge. Isn't it interesting that we say that we read a map, like we're reading words or interpreting numbers. It's a different kind of language. And in the age key, of discovery, that you need keys for, right? You have to have keys to be able to unlock right. the map. And, and in one of the earliest examples of corporate espionage, when you captured an enemy ship, the first thing you went looking for was their maps. And then the first thing you did with those maps is copy them over and translate the words into your native tongue. That's where I think we get the term reading maps from. And so Columbus was just a map whore himself. He was just taking as many as he could. In fact, he's even mentioned in the Piri Reese maps as well as uh, being someone who uh, was using these earlier source maps, some of them, as I mentioned, dating from the Library of Alexandria, which burned about 2,000 years ago. Now, there's some talk that some of these maps may have survived, Ryan, and guess where they ended up? I would guess the Vatican. You guessed right. And <laughs> boy, if we're ever privy to what might be in the Vatican Library, I think it could be some very mind-blowing uh, information, especially about some of these early maps. And because if you were to have early mapping knowledge, then that would show that people before Columbus or Piri Reese had a knowledge of the continents, the world being round and being able to sail to these destinations. Look, the planet is 71% covered in ocean. We really live on an ocean planet. And so for the longest time, these stodgy historians say that, Oh, the oceans were a barrier. No, they weren't. They were actually highways and ways that cultural diffusionism could allow for the different peopling of the continents, not just the Bering Land Strait had all the peoples in the Americas. I mean, come on, are you serious? All the way down to Terra del Fuego with the Fuguayan Indians who are literally giants compared to the uh, Peruvian or Mayans who are only about five foot, three foot tall for the men. And then all the different uh, linguistic styles in the Americans of the native American people. 
I mean, we're talking about the peopling of a lot of different genome types and from distant areas of the world, including some of the giants that have been found in North America, tall, redheaded, even mummified, such as in the Lovelock Cave and the Spirit Cave in Nevada, when there was a giant freshwater lake in northern Nevada called Lake Lahotian. Brad, can you tell us the Alexandrian Library was a reservoir of uh, perhaps artifacts, but at least scrolls and texts that likely date back thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years, correct? Well, that's right. It's named after Alexander the Great, who was by far one of the greatest historical figures who only lived to the age of 33, but he had uh, taken out the Persian army and marched all the way to what is uh, Western India to the Indus River Valley in today's Pakistan, and then back again, collecting information, also spreading Hellenistic culture throughout the way. But just like the Piri Reis map, saying that it is a source map going back to the Library of Alexandria, Alexander the Great was collecting all the artifacts to populate this library. So it would go back thousands of years from what he collected. And you could also say because it was stored in Egypt that all of that Egyptian knowledge would have also been uh, kept in that library oh, as certainly, well. Certainly, certainly. It really goes back far away. Kind of like a hall of records, if you will. And, yeah. uh, and Perry Rees, so Perry Rees, if I remember correctly, he was an admiral, correct, in the Turkish Navy? Correct. So he wasn't just a random guy who said, let me draw a map. This guy was <laughs> in the Navy. He was an admiral. He is indeed. And if you look at it, uh, and I encourage your listeners to do a quick keyword search, it's called P-I-R-I-R-E-I-S map. And it accurately depicts the Iberian Peninsula, of Spain and Portugal, as we know them today, as well as the West African coast, quite remarkably, including uh, animals in Africa, as well as sultanates, because Piri Reis was uh, a Muslim. So he would recognize other Muslim nations in uh, southern Spain. It looks like a representation of the city of Granada, which was built by the Moors, the uh, Muslims who lived in Spain, which happen to have been all expelled from Spain and Portugal the same year that Columbus made his voyage in 1492. So it was a great change at that time in Europe, but the, the Arabic mariners, the Admiral Piri Reis of the world, were just as prolific exploring these far-flung lands and mapping them out. You can also see the Canary Islands and the Azori Islands off the coast of Africa, where I mentioned in the last segment of this pyramid underwater that has been discovered. Is anybody in the scientific community or the cartography community disputing the Perry Rees map, Brad? Not disputing in the fact that they're calling it a fake, but probably uh, discounting the enormity of the Piri Reis map, for example, showing the eastern shoreline of South America very accurately and how that was done 21 years after Columbus's voyage, who only sailed to the islands of the Caribbean Sea, right, right. never touched ground in North or South America. 
Well, right. You look at some of these maps, like I've got the uh, the Hapgood book here, and I'm looking at some of these maps, or you just look at any old maps and you know things that we know very well today, the outline, the definition, uh, they look kind of funky and weird. They look kind of like uh, they're all scrunched up and they're not very accurate. But if if that coastline is accurate, then clearly somebody had knowledge of it from previous maps, which we, we could assume this is an assumption Brad, I, I would think at some point in history, uh, someone had to have had an aerial view of, uh, of, of the Earth or of the continent. Um, I, I mean, maybe with modern technology, we could map it just with computers, but I feel like you'd have to have uh, an aerial view to be able to map it that well so long ago without those kinds of technologies, assuming that those technologies uh, didn't exist. Not only that, Ryan, but if you look at maps of what Antarctica would look like without the ice, it's riddled with offshore islands that have still yet to be discovered. As I mentioned with Pie Island, some of these are starting to uh, show themselves, but the Perry Reese map also shows a portion of Antarctica off the Palmer Peninsula with some of these islands that are locked under the ice in the Larsen ice shelf. So when it was drawn, whether from the air, computer, whatever, however somebody put this thing together, originally the sources of the Perry Rees map and others perhaps, they clearly had uh, an ice-free view of Antarctica and the, and the surrounding islands. And is that correct? Well, that is what it surely appears to be. And I think uh, Charles Hapgood was not mincing his words when he subtitled his book, Evidence of Advanced Civilization in the Last Ice Age, that this overview of Antarctica was examined by these ancient cartographers without the sea ice and then passed on and copied by other uh, map makers until they made their way to the Library of Alexandria. When I think of... um ancient civilization, Brad, I think of um, whatever was responsible for destroying the, the remnants of those civilizations. And I actually think of contemporary events like the hurricane that just struck Florida. I grew up in Florida. I was through a lot of hurricanes. And you see just even a, a Category 3, Category 4 rain, wind, you see storm surge and how easily it just wipes human civilization off the map. All that's left is just some wood, uh, a few items that are floating in the water, and just total destruction. Um, and if you think back to a great deluge, or if you think about uh, you know hundreds or thousands of years of storms and water rising and and and, and uh, declining again, um, anything that we would think even relatively recently that might be left over from a, from a civilization. Can, can so simply, so easily, and so uh, cleanly be wiped from the face of this planet with Mother Nature. And, and so it's no wonder we don't find a lot, but we still find so much that it's undeniable that there certainly was, as, as Hapgood alluded to, uh, ancient civilizations on this planet, perhaps one or multiple civilizations, maybe one species, maybe multiple species, but certainly our history is not at all what we think it is. Uh, and then I'm, I'm looking at this this book here of Hapgoods, and there's a lot of other maps in it, too. Are any of these other maps just as important as the Perry Rees map? Oh, yeah, for sure. And I include them also in my presentation, the early maps and the Builder Race, <clears throat> because so many of them 
show Antarctica. So just look at the example of Magellan being the first to find the way through southern South America. Of course, it's still known as the Magellan Straits, and I had to cross over that when I went down to Terra del Fuego. And on Magellan's first map, he shows the Magellan Straits, but he also shows Terra del Fuego as connecting to this larger landmass, which we now know as Antarctica. So subsequent maps of the Magellan Strait in the maps of Finney, Appian, and Munster also show uh, what looked like they're just copying Magellan's concept of Terra del Fuego as connecting to what they called back then Terra Australis Incognita. And that's a Latin term for the southern continent, which was called Australis, after Australia was discovered by Abel Tasman, the Dutch mariner. Australia got that name, as well as Tasmania, the island off southern Australia, named after Abel Tasman. But on this map of uh, Hondius in 1608, it calls Antarctica Terra Australis Incognita. And terra Incognita means the unknown lands. But it also says Terra del Fuego as that connecting point. So that suggests to me that they were all privy to Magellan's map, copied it as cartographers do from other source maps. And so this whole notion of the southern continent of Australia and then Antarctica came to fruition. Now, uh, Antarctica is named by the ancient Greeks. So all the way back to the time of the ancient Greeks, they knew there had to be a southern continent to balance out the weight of the land masses to the north. Now, how they knew this, I don't know. But the name is derived from Arctis. And Arctis is where the Arctic gets its name, and it's a constellation up by the northern stars that the Greeks named. So the opposite of Arctis was Antarctis, and that's where that continent name comes Interesting. from. Interesting. I didn't know that. Antarctica. Well, I like to tell you something new once in a while, too, uh, Ryan. You're so smart, and you often educate me, so good to throw one back into your court. <laughs> well, when, when I think of... Uh like the Greeks, you said, how, how, how did they have that idea? How did they know that? I don't know, from what I've read in a lot of uh, occult or esoteric history books, a lot of it was assumed based on the patterns of nature. So it's the idea that if we have uh, revolving uh, planets around a, a sun or around uh, another planetary-type body, um, it mimics, obviously, you've written about this in your books, it mimics um, at the macrocosmic level what we can assume is at the microcosmic level. We have electrons and, and, and protons and neutrons. We have the atom, very similar to a solar system. So if you can get the view of one thing in that in the natural world, you can kind of assume that the rest of reality is also patterned in a similar way. And so if they're thinking that there's all these northern uh, land masses and they don't know for sure if there's anything in the south, you can kind of assume that to have balance in the world, there probably is something in the south. D does that make sense? Well, and that goes along the lines of as above, so below. Yes. And there you have the microcosm of the macrocosm. And I think the ancient Greeks, once they determined that the earth was a sphere, that they were able to 
also reasoned that if there was such a landmass, and they knew of Asia, of course, they knew of Europe, they knew of Africa, you have these big continents all together. Uh, what might be in the southern part of that sphere? And that's when they envisioned Antarctica. Now, let me ask you this, Brad. I know this might be controversial for some listeners, but what do you make of the reemergence of flat Earth in regard to everything we're discussing tonight? Well, I've been to Antarctica. I've set foot on the ground. I've seen the mountains there. I know it's a continent. Uh, and so there is no such thing as the ice wall. What is presumed to be an ice wall are some of these ice shelves. And one of the first things I saw when I was sailing down from Ushuaia, which is in Terra del Fuego, to the Palmer Peninsula, were these massive blocks of ice that are calving off of the uh, ice shelves. Most uh, closest to where we were, the Larsen A and B ice shelves, which every year breaks off and then they float up to the northern parts and, and eventually melt. Similarly with the uh, northern uh, hemisphere with the Arctic Ocean. So, uh, Ryan, I've been to uh, Trondheim, Norway, which is a few degrees south of the Arctic Circle. I've been to within one degree of the Antarctic Circle, and I've been around the world, uh, mostly at the equatorial level. And I can tell you, firsthand experience, observation, empirical data that it is a round or spherical planet. Well, uh, we can either believe Brad Olson or we can think that Brad Olson is working for some elite secret society. I don't know. It's up, it's up to you to decide that. Uh, anyway, Brad, I, I want to thank you. Put on the brakes a little bit. I want to thank you for coming on the show. Uh, we've been friends for a long time. I always appreciate when we have time to talk, to talk about these kinds of things. The few minutes that we have left, about four or five, I know you have a talk coming up. You have the, uh, I think it's a UFO alien-themed How Weird, uh, How Weird Street Fair coming up in San Francisco. You have a lot of things coming up. Let the listeners know about those things, where they can find you online, and where they can get the Esoteric Book series. Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm uh, the founder of the How Weird Street Fair up in San Francisco. We're having our 23rd annual event, and it's called Close Encounters of a Weird Kind. We always have an alien theme. So that's uh, pretty much par for the course. That's coming up on October 15th, and I'm hoping you might make a surprise appearance. Would love to get the secret teachings on the guest list and have you guys come and check it out. So that is in a week and a half, and then in two and a half weeks, I'm flying to Florida for the uh, conference in Orlando, Florida. And I think tickets are still available for that. Alex Collier is going to be there, his very last appearance in public at the Informers Conference, it's called. And uh, Michael Sala is going to be there, who he and I compare notes on Antarctica all the time. And Elena Dinan, who did the remote viewing on that new Egyptian or possible temple found in the Grand Canyon. And so many other great speakers. Laura Eisenhower is also going to be there. And um, a bunch more. Then, uh, I have my last conference of the season in Santa Rosa, California on October 30th. And I'm finally done. I've spoken at about a dozen conferences this year 
then I got to get out to my land. I just bought a 10 acre ranch in Yerington, Nevada, start working on that, getting that developed. I saw that. How far, how far are you from, uh, from Arizona here, from where your land is? Well, it's closer because now I'm just basically directly above you. It's about an hour east of Lake Tahoe, <clears throat> to give you an idea. So uh, Nevada's a big state. I think it's the eighth largest of all the U.S. states. It's quite uh, extensive, but about 360 miles to Vegas. Okay, so that's not too far. Uh, I think uh, Vegas is six hours from me, so you're not, you're not too, too far. You're a day drive, not too far away. Yeah, it's still about day drive. Well, Nevada- yeah, I'll have to have you come out once I get a... Some tiny houses built, and then I'm eventually going to do my own conferences there. So uh, you don't even know it yet, Ryan, but you're going to be a headliner for the first Fast Walker conference. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, didn't you know didn't that. know that. Well, now you know it. <laughs> I learned something else tonight. <laughs> so CCC sure Publishing, is. that is the website, cccpublishing.com? Yes, it is. And there you can get my signed copies, other authors that we publish, through CCC Publishing. And if you want to follow my conference schedule and other projects that I'm working on, like the How Weird Street Fair, you can go to bradolson.com. And I've already uh, booked for about a half a dozen conferences in 2023. So uh, my conference speaking schedule starts again in February at the Conscious Life Expo in LA and then move into uh, close to you in Sedona for a conference on the uh, spring equinox. So uh, maybe we can meet up there again. Yeah, that's much closer. I could, I, that would be an easy drive. Uh, are they having contact in the desert next year? I heard they are, but it may have sold to a different group. So I've not heard from the old producers. They say, yeah, they're going to have me in and I was going to be a speaker. But uh, then I heard that the, uh, the event changed hands and have not heard if I'm going to be a speaker at that, but it was supposed to be at the very end of May, 2023. Okay. okay. I mean, that's the one I, I normally go to, uh, by the way, on cccpublishing.com, you publish all of, uh, our good friend, Leo Zagami's books. And, uh, I was looking at your website, uh, the invisible master. That's one of my favorites of Leo's books. Uh, it really is great. Such a good book. The puppeteers hidden power. Anyway, yep. Brad Olson, the new book beyond esoteric. I think everybody, if you don't know Brad, you know, Brad a little bit better now. Uh, new presentations, new conferences, new books, all kinds of things going on. Brad Olson, thank you so much, my friend, for coming on The Secret Teachings and uh, spending the night with us. Oh, always a pleasure, Ryan. Thanks for having me on and uh, look forward to the next time we can do it. All right. Hopefully we can do it again soon. You take care, okay? Bye-bye. Good night. All right. There goes Brad. Again, I'm Ryan Gable. This is The Secret Teachings. I also have some books All my books are on the website at www.thesecretteachings.info. My new book, it's pushing 700 pages. It's Liberty Shrugged, and it might be about something slightly different than what you would assume by the title. You can read about it on the website. I don't have any reviews in yet. My other books have a lot of reviews from different uh, authors and radio hosts. You can read about them like Occult Arcana and the Technological Elixir www.thesecretteachings.info. If you'd like to reach out and contact us directly, rdgable at yahoo.com. That's rdgable at yahoo.com. We have a lot of guests lined up for next week, but we also have tomorrow night, Friday night. We'll be back, as always, 10 p.m. to midnight Pacific on GroundZero.radio, right after Clyde and Ground Zero. If you did tonight, I appreciate it. Stay with us tomorrow night as well. Stay with Ground Zero Radio. Listen to the secret teachings right after Clyde 
Really would appreciate it. You can also leave us a review on any of the radio or podcast players. If you listen like on Apple Podcasts, for example, you can leave us a review on there. It lets other people know what you think of the show, and uh, maybe they'll tune in and listen as well. Stay safe, stay informed, stay healthy, and we will talk to you on the next broadcast. If anyone can hear this broadcast, I'm still on Earth. This is the frequency of Ground Zero Radio, Ground Zero with Clyde Lewis, and the secret teachings with myself, Brian Gable. If you'd like to hear more of the secret teachings, if you missed a show or part of a show, sign up to the ever-expanding archive at thesecretteachings.info. When you subscribe for a month or a year, you get access to the full show archive to every show after it airs. You can download and stream unlimited episodes and share your login with friends or family. With your subscription, you can also get access on the website to all of Ryan's digital books and the ever-growing montage archive. Just visit thesecretteachings.info and click on the Donate Subscribe tab at the top of the page. Use the secure PayPal link and start your membership today. By subscribing, you support The Secret Teachings, Ryan, and yourself.